Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have a returning guest. Uh, He was really cool last time. Uh, Hopefully he'll be well-behaved and a nice guy this time too. Just kidding. But uh, his name is St. Patrick Reed. He's an assistant professor at University of Nebraska. And uh, last time we spoke about various viruses that he he looks at, uh, you know, Ebola, chikungunya, and Zika. Uh, this time, I wanted him to be a part of this virus book that I'm putting together. So he's one of the heavy hitters that I, I asked to be a part of it. So I'm going to ask him questions uh, you know, about the book. So we won't be covering his research this time, but we'll be covering his thoughts about it. So St. Patrick, thanks for coming again. How are you doing? Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, just to start out with, again, in case people aren't familiar, tell me a little bit about uh, your, your research and how you got in, interested in viruses. Oh, yeah, sure. So my research primarily is on what we call post-pathogen interactions. So essentially what I'm interested in is looking at how once a virus infects a cell, the um, different host proteins it has to recruit in order to allow for it to replicate and to successfully reproduce, essentially. Um, So I was born in Jamaica. Uh, My family moved here when I was about six years old. Then I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, after Brooklyn, New York, I went to the University of Rochester for my undergrad. And fast forward, I went to Mount Sinai in Manhattan for uh, my PhD. And my PhD studies was on Ebola virus. After working on Ebola virus, I actually uh, did uh, what's called a postdoctoral fellowship. Um, I did it in France under Victor Volskov on Ebola virus. I then returned to the U.S. and I did another postdoctoral fellowship at the U.S. Amrid at Fort Detrick. And there is when I did some more Ebola work, and then I shifted towards uh, chikungunya virus. And in 2016, I got the assistant professor position at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where I'm now working. And uh, our lab focuses on, um, as you can expect, chikungunya, Ebola, and naturally now we've been working on SARS-CoV-2. Have you um, literally worked in like a BS, BSL level four lab with Ebola, with real Ebola? Yes. So when I was in Lyon in France under Victor Volskov, I worked in the BSL-4 there. Actually, they call it the PCAT for force cat in French. So it's called the PCAT. And um, yeah, so I've been in the BSL-4. Um, it's an interesting experience. It's Some people really like it. Um, others like myself think it's re- way too cumbersome. I think a lot of scientists who are engaged in BSL-4 pathogen work um, do it for the allure because it feels cool and it sounds cool. But when you're really doing it, it's like you're kind of working with a spacesuit on and, and big yeah. kitchen gloves. And so like, <laughs> practically speaking, it's not very cool in like actuality. Is it scary? <laughs> um, not really. I, I mean, no. I mean, it's just a virus. I mean, you know how it's transmitted. So you just don't get it, don't get infected. Well, well I mean, from my, my, from my perspective, because keep in mind, I'm a cellular biologist. So I'm, I'm, I'm primarily working with the virus in, you know, in a, 
in a biosafety hood and I'm just like infecting cells. Now, others who are doing, let's say like animal work. So if you're infecting non-human primates, for example, and you're doing necropsies, like that kind of stuff gets a little bit interesting and it gets a little scary then. I, I, I don't do that. I've never done that. But I think that to me is scary, if you ask me personally. Okay. Yeah, no, that's why I wanted your perspective, you know. All I know <laughs> is what I've seen in movies, so that's why I have to ask you. you know? Oh, yeah, no, they, I mean, they have to overly, you know, dramatize it, but essentially yeah. it's, you're, just, you're just taking, um, you're just moving fluids, very minor um, amount of fluid from one tube to another tube, to a dish, to a tube, to a dish, to a tube, to a dish. Okay, gotcha. All right, so now, now to the questions. Um, to your knowledge, do all forms of life you know, prokaryotes, eukaryotes, et cetera, have viruses? And what are a couple of examples that interest you or surprise you? Um, so the answer to that is yes. And um, what I've been really interested in recently are, um, I have a friend who is a bacteriologist and he's been studying um, bacteria in glacial um, inlands. And, and it turns out that these ancient bacteria they also have phages and bacteriophages are basically viruses that infect bacteria. And, and so what really interests me are the viruses that infect different bacteria that allows for the bacteria to live in a community of other bacterium. And, and, and it's the viruses that can play a role in allowing for those different bacterial species to survive. So that's been really interesting to me recently. Um, Okay. Does that answer the question? Yeah, I just wanted to know, right. Uh, you know, for instance, I saw a paper that uh, there were viruses and stromatolites from, you know, three plus billion years ago. So they seem right. to be yeah. around yeah. all the time. Yeah, so these, these ancient phages that, are, that, are, that, are, that infect or successfully infect bacterium is, 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 is really fascinating. Here's another thing that actually really fascinates me, and I'm not sure you're familiar, but there are these um, viruses called um, Gemini virus or Mimi viruses. These are called giant viruses. These are viruses that are found in, in, uh, in, in the water in different parts of the world. I think they've been identified in, in like um, the Amazon, for example. These viruses are bigger than um, some bacteria and their genomes, some of them are larger than bacterial genomes. And these are called these giant viruses. And so we're trying to, I think there's a, it's an emerging field, um, trying to understand how these viruses have emerged, where they come from, why do they encode so many genes? Why are they so big? <laughs> um, uh, and, and, and what do all these genes do? And, 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 and essentially it gets to this really cool crossroads where the difference between a bacteria and a virus as we know it is you can put a bacteria in a certain culture conditions and it will replicate, right? Viruses, we believe, need to be inside of a living organism, whether it's a bacteria, a cell, just something in order for it to replicate. Well, if these viruses are larger than some bacteria and have enough protein and can encode enough genes, do they in fact need to be inside something to replicate? And then if they can replicate on their own, then what does that actually mean for what we call life? Right, that's true. Well, that's what I was gonna ask you next is, um... Are viruses alive or not, and why? What's your thoughts? Viruses are probably not alive because of their dependence. But then I can argue with myself on that for days and days and days. So um, the honest answer is I would say yes, but I'd qualify it with I don't really know. Well, perhaps they're contingently alive. You know, when they're in the virion phase outside of a host or a cell, they're, you know, dormant. But once they enter a cell, maybe then they have all the hallmarks of life. I don't know. You know, just like a, 
a tree well, is alive, I mean, but the seed may not be, or maybe in a dormant state until it finds its soil and moisture and sun. Well, 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 that's, well, that's, that's, that's an interesting concept, right? Because then what you're trying to say then is to be alive means you have to have some kind of action, right? You have to be doing something. Um, like it's basically the, it's your, 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 positing that you required um, some kind of act activity, right? Yeah, you, you have to have well, maybe, kind of maybe, well, again, like, a, again, a tree is alive, but if I have the seed of a tree, is the seed alive? You know, everyone says, yeah, of course, the tree's alive, but is the seed alive? I mean, it's kind of like a virion. You know, if I look at it macroscopically, it's not moving. If I zoom in with a microscope, it's probably still not moving. So where is the life in it? It's weird. Like, where does the life come from? And is it alive? Is it not alive? Um, you know, if I take well, a cell and I start taking elements out of it, I pull out the nucleus or I pull out a ribosome. I mean, is it still alive? Like, where's the life in it? Well, I mean, I think, I mean, fundamentally as a scientist, it's always about the question, right? And so the question is, what do we define as life? And I think we need to have a uniform definition to engage in the conversation. So, so what do we define? So we should have the parameters and what we define as life. And then from there we go forward and say, okay, well, based on these definitions that we're proposing, if so facto, this is life. If so facto, this is not life. But, but, but broadly speaking, it's really hard because I think we have a different idea, right? So I yeah. think we should start with the definition. It's tough. I, that's why I wanted your speculation. I mean, even with, with babies, um, is conception the start of life or three months, six months, you know, so we can't even... We can't even agree <laughs> on our own on our own gestation, you know. So I don't yeah. know if we're going to agree on viruses. No, no. I I think I think you're absolutely right. Which is which is kind of why you know I I, I first said it's 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 kind of it's it's both a, a philosophical thought and then an actual theory on you know biologically. So I I think I think life itself is something that can be broken into those two arms, right? Philosophically, what you define it as. Biologically, what you define it as. And and I think there's a number of people on both arms that would argue a lot of different things. And that's not something I really want to get into. <laughs> I got you. I got you. <laughs> yeah. The, the reason I, I, I you know so we'll we'll leave this point. We'll move on. But um, uh, now in terms of uh, virus, and again, I mean I'm going to anthropomorphize, but viral behavior. Um, some uh, appear to infect and be very virulent and you know, kill the creature it infects. Uh, some go in there and they, they're latent. They, they hang out for days, weeks, months, years, lifetimes, and mm -hmm. don't seem to yep. do anything. And, you know, um, some actually, you know, are able to retroviruses endogenize into the host's genetic material. Um, oh, look at you. How, yes, how, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, well, how, how could these things, uh, what, what drives this? Like, what, what do you think drives a virus to be latent or lysogenic or, you know, lytic or, you know, what do you think drives us? Um, I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think it has to do with host adaptation and its in introduction. So um, as an RNA virologist, which I am, which I, I study RNA viruses like Ebola, I think a lot of the, the pathogenicity um, that we see from these kinds of viruses is, is usually due to their new introduction. So relatively speaking, they're, they're, they're um, newly introduced to the host, right? And because they were newly introduced, they just kind of replicate and kill. And so one of the hallmarks of Ebola during outbreaks typically is basically that the host get kill, gets killed essentially so fast that it doesn't allow for the virus to replicate, uh, to spread fast enough, which if you're a virus, that's not beneficial to you, right? It doesn't allow for you to stick around longer. So that's why we're called spillover hosts. 
Um, I think the longer you're around uh, a community or engaged in a process of seeing something more, the more you're going to adapt to want to be there, which means you don't want to kill too fast and you want to maybe stick around even longer. So, so, so from that perspective, for certain viruses, I, I think certainly it's, it's the new introduction to hosts that allow for um, the virus to be more lytic, for example. Now, now um, the, the, the differences between um, your uh, viruses that will integrate, like your retroviruses that you mentioned, and your viruses that are able to have these processes where they can just kind of stick around, like your herpes viruses, which are DNA viruses, is, and I, I think classically speaking, it, it gets back to RNA versus DNA versus double-stranded DNA versus single-stranded RNA, and, and, and what those different nucleic acids uh, impart when they get into the host and then what they're able to do. So, so I, I think those are, those, are, those are the different aspects of um, what will drive how that works. Now, with that said, we've learned now from Ebola virus, interestingly, from the West African outbreak, that apparently Ebola virus can actually go latent as well, which, which brings a whole new paradigm to RNA viruses, because we've always thought that your DNA viruses, like your herpes viruses, because they're DNA viruses, and also because they go to the nucleus, they can kind of hang out and go latent. Um, we've always assumed that your RNA viruses, like Ebola, that kind of um, replicate entirely in the cytoplasm, um, they basically just won't stick around. Either the cells die, the host dies, the virus leaves, and, you know, keeps it moving. What we've learned from the West African outbreak is that there has been a number of individuals who were infected with Ebola. Um, they seem to have cleared the virus. They were otherwise healthy. And then months down the road, the virus comes back. And, and, we, and, and we know now from non-human primate studies that and, and this is really interesting. Um, what they used to do is they would infect these non-human primates with Ebola or Marburg virus and they would do these drug studies, right? So you would, you know, you would um, treat the animals because you're trying to see if you could identify a compound or some kind of therapeutic. And you would always sometimes have the infected animals who survive, right? Like every once in a while, you have the infected, untreated animals and they survive. And they would just kind of leave them and do, do some other, other studies with them. What they found recently, and this is a few years back, if you go back and look at those animals that survived, there's still virus there. It's just not replicating. Hmm. Interesting. It just, it just, so, it just, so this, um, this brings a question then. So when a virus is inside of a cell, inside of you know, some kind of host, uh, do you think it's able to co-opt the cellular machinery and either send out extracellular vesicles to, to see you know, if other cells are infected with the same virus or somehow, uh, again, communicate. You know, if, if I imagine a virus is like a, a guy sitting at the control panel of a cell inside of it, and, you know, is, is the virus able to communicate with other cells using the cell's machinery to, uh, to see if there's other, virus, other cells that are infected and how many? Maybe there's quorum sensing and coordinated action. What's your thought? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. That's an interesting question. I don't, I don't, I don't know if we've, um, I'm not familiar off the top of my head with those kinds of studies. We do know that um, cells are always secreting like extracellular vesicles, like exosomes, for example, that's always being released um, just on a normal basis. Your cells are always communicating that way. And so it stands to reason that when a virus infects a cell, it co-ops that system 
And as a matter of fact, some viruses will leave through exosomes, right? And some viruses will manipulate what's being released from the exosomes. So that would imply to me that the virus is actually, is, it's manipulating the host signal. Now, whether it's manipulating the host signal in such a way that it's trying to detect other, the, um, the presence of other pathogens, I, don't, I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't speculate that because that requires, I think, a little too much coordination. And I think a virus per se, like Ebola virus, once it gets into a cell, it's just replicating. I don't think Ebola virus is getting into a cell and trying to identify if there's another virus. I think that would only be the case if they can cooperatively allow for replication to enhance over time. And so if both of those viruses have infected this host over time and there's a beneficial relationship between them, because the host will allow for them to both be there, then the signal that they will secrete will allow for that to occur. But, but that, would, that, would, that, would, that would require them to have infected the same host for you know, eons for that, for, for that cooperativity to have uh, evolved. Now, with that said, your phages are probably doing that. So your, your, your microbiota in your cells and in your body, you know, those, those bacterium in your, in your body, the, the commensal or the good bacteria, they have phages. Those phages are probably communicating. So yeah, I mean, you know, if a, if a if a virus is able to co-opt a cell's machinery to the point where it, you know, it, it enslaves in it and makes more virions to the point where, it, you know, it, it it kills itself, it depletes all its resources and then blows open and it's the end of it. You know, why couldn't it again understand the cellular's machinery, the cell's machinery to use it to communicate, you know, for it as a proxy? That was my thought. I mean, it makes, it, make, it, 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 it makes sense, but it, it assumes that that individual, so let's say the virion in cell A has a conscious effort to, you know, communicate with cell B. And I would posit mm-hmm. that the virion in cell A doesn't give a, a can I, I can't curse, I won't curse, doesn't care about what's happening in cell B, right? That virion right. Is, 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 is secreting what it's secreting. Um, to help itself. And if by helping itself, it releases things that happen to help, you know, the virus in cell B, then it does, but its purpose is not to do that. So viruses aren't trying to, viruses aren't trying to quorum sense, essentially. They're, they're just trying to replicate. And so what allows them to replicate, allows them to replicate. If by chance, the signaling that it's modifying releases to then allow for, you know, the virus in cell B to replicate, then it's a cooperative relationship that will then allow for it to, to then flourish, but only if it's a cooperative relationship. But that virus is not going to do it to help another virus. That virus is doing it to help itself. Mm. Um, do you think that there is a, a group identity? You know, in bacteria, you have biofilms, and they would form a biofilm preferentially with their own strain. Um, perhaps viruses are maybe like a, uh, you know, uh, they have quasi-species. Maybe they're like a bee colony, and there's... Uh, different ones that have different roles in an infection and there's some kind of coordination. Any thought there, or you think they're, they're lone agents that, that hang out with no one and infect on their own? <laughs> yeah, um, that's actually a really good point because I, I think there, there is something to that. There is, there is the idea that during infection, um, and, this, and this is, um, I think there's this, like, there's like defective interference, I think a defective interferon particles, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm screwing it up. But basically once, once the virus, some viruses, once they're replicating, they'll make you know, um, different versions of certain genes or they'll make um, half a portion of their genome. And so, so they will you know, effectively make these quasi-species during the course of infection. And then the one that kind of will grow the most is the one that you kind of get out of it. When it that's the one that replicates the best. And that's what you see. But during the course of an infection, 
there, there might be these different variants um, as the as the virus is replicating. Um, but it's the same virus, right? It's it's the it's the same species. So it's Ebola that's replicating, but it might be replicating poorly, and so it might make a you know, one protein might come out halfway, one protein might come out the full way, one protein might be mutated a bit, one protein might come out longer, but it's the same virus, right? So it'll, it, it's just different versions of the same thing. And the one that's the most fit is the one that kind of will keep replicating and keep going. So, but, but, but it's not so that there's different, let's say species. So, so different um, groups of Ebola viruses or different groups of, um, I don't know, flu viruses, um, uh, better than mixing well actually that's not true because they do mix um but yeah yeah so so say so, yeah so to your i guess to your to, to your point you do have that with flu in in certain species where where like a like a pig where a pig can have avian flu so a flu that specifically infects uh birds and and the flu virus that can infect humans and they can both infect let's say a pig and so you can have a pig that has both viruses and then the viruses mix in them and, and that's a mixing vessel. So then you can't have that occur where you can get these quasi-species and a whole new virus comes out of that, right? But it's still the flu. It's just well, a different looking, you know, it's these, just a different looking flu at the end, but it's still the flu. Yeah. yeah. Well, these, these, these viruses that will go latent inside of someone for a while, you know, has anyone, let's say, you know, AIDS or even now, now Ebola, you know, what if you uh, looked at someone and you, you sampled the virus from them when they were infected and you sequenced them all, looked for variations and then you know let's say went latent in them for a while and then you sequenced again you looked at you know how's the viral load different uh is there any you know more changes now in the virus how different is it from before and supposedly like hiv changes tremendously even within a given infection and, and produces a lot of different variants right 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 so that, that, i that just wonder if there's a coordination of infection you know between these variants maybe um, that's a really good question. I, 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 I won't pretend to know the answer to it. So the ancillary question is, uh, you know, I've always thought of like one virus, one cell, you know, that model of infection. Do you know of any examples where, um, you know, viruses will coordinate to infect, you know, uh, different, two like of different. them need to fuse to the membrane and you know, one so like, holds the membrane and the other one holds it and they both rip it open and enter, you know, is there, is, it, is no. <laughs> there coordination needed? Um, I, don't no, I, don't, I don't know if anything like that, but there is. Um, so you've heard of adenovirus, right? Adenovirus is one mm -hmm. of the viruses that cause the common cold. So there's adeno and adeno-associated virus. And I believe adeno-associated virus doesn't have the machinery to replicate. So I, I, I mean, this is, I'm going back to my virology textbooks, but I believe adeno-associated virus doesn't have the equipment. And so basically it needs to have another virus, I think adenovirus has to be there to allow for this virus to replicate. And, and, so, and so there are these cases, so there are these cases, and I'm not familiar enough with it to expound too much, but I know there are cases where viruses will, for example, um, I think this happens with plant viruses, where one virus has, you know, gene A, and then another virus has gene B. Both of those viruses need to get into the cell for them to replicate successfully. Individually, nothing will happen. So I know that exists in nature, and I think it happens a lot in the plant world. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, any examples of viral-like abilities being co-opted by other life forms? Like, you know, for instance, I saw once there was, a, you know, an example given to me was a bacteria was able to take spike proteins from a given phage 
and express them on its membrane. And now it had a spike on it and it was able to poke other bacteria and, you know, blow them open and, and kill them. Viruses are, are tools. They can, uh, they can be used as a tool. They use cells as tools. Cells use them as tools, et cetera. But any, any examples of this that you've seen that are really interesting to you? Um, specifically of, of cells using viruses or viruses using cells, do you, do you mean? Which, which, which one? I'm not, I'm not. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Either way, where, where the, the viral-like abilities are, are like a tool and it's used in one way or another in a surprising way. You know, it's like me, I don't know, I guess, you know, being extreme, but me uh, you know, plucking an eye out of an eagle, popping it in my head, now I can see. But, you know, with viruses, uh, again, they're, they, they seem to take genetic material from their hosts, and the hosts seem to take genetic material from them, at least in the bacteria world, and, and use it. Right, so I know, I know, I mean, I know at the top of my head that there's a number of um, getting back to your larger viruses, like your, your DNA viruses, like your herpes viruses. On the, on the flip side of your question, I know that there are, these, there are viruses that will, for example, encode genes that look like host genes. So like a virus will make a protein that looks like a host protein, but it's not fully the same, but it's, it's, it's enough to be like a carbon copy almost. So I know, I know viruses will do that. Um, the larger viruses will do that. They'll encode proteins that look like host proteins. Um, now, whether um, certainly, certainly you can, you can co-op viral proteins to understand how the cells work. And, and, and not specifically answering your question, but, but getting into kind of what I really believe and I really love about understanding viruses is you learn a lot about how the cellular machinery itself works by looking at how viruses can co-opt it. And, and, and in fact, that's how we've learned a lot about different things. So with HIV, for example, through HIV research, we learned about introns and exons and how a gene has to be spliced and then gets made into a protein by understanding how HIV completely disrupts that process. And in understanding how HIV disrupts that process, then we're like, oh, this is what normally happens. Mm. So on, on the flip side of that, that's, that's kind of what, that's kind of what it, it, can, it can do. And this is kind of what it does. So it's, it's not so much about, you know, um, let's say a protein being taken and, um, and, and co-opted. There might be specific examples that I can't think of off the top of my head because I'm not that bright. But I know that there are examples of how the cells work and understanding how the cells work comes from understanding how the viruses have disrupted certain processes that we didn't even know occurred. And then we looked at those processes and then we're like, oh, so this is what normally happens by understanding how this guy just completely rigged it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so I guess some more impossible questions. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Just keep it going. I love these questions. I love these questions. Yeah, well, uh, you know, so this is a real tough one. Uh, you know, viruses, some are rods, some are balls with spikes, you know, some are uh, ugly moon landers, you know, head, tail, tail <laughs> fibers, et cetera. Why? Why do, how do they have such different shapes and entry mechanisms? They, you know, and are, are there a couple examples of viruses that have a really crazy entry mechanism that you like or you know, ones that have a shape or a morphology or an ability that amazes you. Oh, yes, yes, absolutely. You know what I'm going to say, right? I don't can know. You, you like chikungunya, I guess. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to say Ebola, of course. Ebola okay. is, is a filovirus, and filo is Latin for thread. And so Ebola virus looks like a thread, and it sometimes comes in like a knot. And it's always curious to me, when it leaves from a cell, what drives that actual, like, um, that shape? And so... Um, 
So, so get it, getting it to shape. What drives release of viruses is usually its ability to recruit the membrane and release from the membrane. And there are specific viral proteins that will recruit the host membrane and will lead to in, in enhancing like membrane curvature as it's being released. And, and so, and so um, the shape is dictated by viral proteins that will be at the membrane that will help it to bud and release. That's what drives that. And so different viral proteins will, will, will allow for different curvatures per se to exist. Now, towards the, um, to your, your question of entry, um, for the most part, entry is directed and driven by uh, the receptors on the outside of the virus. So like with your SARS-CoV-2, your spike protein, right? With Ebola, we call it a glycoprotein. They're all spike proteins. With influenza, it's your HA protein. It's all the same proteins. They're, we just call them different names. But basically, there are proteins that will bind to a host receptor and they will bind to something on the surface of the cell. That thing will then trigger um, entry into the uh, membrane of the cell into like a vacuole. Now, why I like Ebola is because what we've learned with Ebola is it turns out it doesn't necessarily have a receptor on the outside of the cell. Ebola needs to, and this is what the current knowledge is and might change, but the current knowledge is Ebola gets engulfed by what's called macropenocytosis, which, it, which means basically the cell sucks it in, right? And once the cell sucks it in non-specifically, it then has to go into what's called an endosome. Once it's in the endosome, that's when it actually sees its receptor. And before it actually even sees its receptor, here's the really cool thing. The, um, the glycoprotein of Ebola virus, so like the outer protein that, 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 that allows entry, that protein is like, say, like 120 kilodaltons. It has to be cleaved by cathepsins till it's 19 kilodaltons. So it goes from being 120, so this huge thing, to being this really tiny thing. Once it becomes this really tiny thing, then it recognizes this receptor, which is an endosome, which is called NPC1. That's what entry is for Ebola virus. It's an entirely convoluted, complicated process. And it doesn't make sense that this virus can do so much harm when it costs so much economic cost for it to get into us. Well, um, in terms of an entry method, is it the cell being tricked, being activated and allowing something in? Or do you think that the cell is uh, deliberately looking to let things in and it lets it in by mistake? What, what, what's guiding the, uh, the entry? That's a, that's, a re that's a really good question. So I think... Um, so we know certain cells, like your immune cells, like macrophages, are constantly um, able to engulf things, right? So, so there are certain cells in your body who, like standard practices, to engulf things um, and see if they're good, bad, and then present them if they're bad. And then, you know, ipso facto, your immune responses get triggered. Um, now, whether your normal cells, like your epithelial cells, um, whether they're doing that naturally, um, I think they probably are to some extent, not as active as your macrophages, but um, I, I, think, I think cells are constantly sampling the environment. And so, and so they can be triggered to do that. Now, what you're asking, which is interesting is, does it just normally do it? Or does the virus actually still bind something? Because right now what we believe is that Ebola gets engulfed. And, 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 and what you're asking, which might be interesting is, is it actually triggering some mechanism on the surface that allows for it to be engulfed? That then allows for it to see its receptor. That I don't, we don't have the answer to that yet, but that would be an interesting um, uh, experiment to pursue. If, if you look at a, you know, like a, the T4 phage that enters, you know, E. coli, it's the moonlander looking one. There right. it looks like, all right, 
the phage is doing all this amazing complicated stuff. You know, the tail fibers touch, they orient, it pulls it to the surface. The, the bottom of the base plate changes shape and screws its way into the membrane and injects, you know, so that's like a very active phage centric entry mechanism. But it sounds like Ebola is, is the opposite. It, it doesn't seem to quote unquote do much and the, the cell itself is like saying, oh, let's engulf it, you know, let's invaginate and, and take it in. Well, I think, I think, I think you got to take, take a step back. I, I think what you're learned about that years and years and years ago, we've literally learned about Ebola virus entry in the past like five years. So like our understanding of how it works and our understanding of like the mechanism and what guides it, what drives it, making really cool images of it. All that stuff is like brand new, man. The T4 phage stuff, we've learned, we've, we learned about T4 phage for a while ago. So they have a really, basically they have a really good PR team, right? With Ebola, we're still learning about it. So we're still trying to understand how it looks, what the mechanism is, um, the crystal structure, you know, getting the crystal structures down and seeing exactly how it looks once it's formed. All of those things are, are underappreciated because for these viruses, they've been understudied. So everything is really brand new. So, you know, this, the, like structurally speaking, the way you're describing T4 phage, the, uh, the entry mechanism that guide Ebola is pretty much the same. It just doesn't, um, it just doesn't look as cool, essentially, <laughs> but, it's, but it's kind of the same. I just wonder if there's so many different entry mechanisms. Well, no, no, we know the outer, the outer surface protein, which is called the, glyc the glycoprotein or the spike protein or that tail protein from T4 phage that you're describing, that drives the entry. Um, that will dictate how it gets into the host, how it gets into the host and, and the mechanism by which it gets into the host. So, so we know that. So for, for each virus, for the most part, it's their outer surface protein. Um, I mean, it's entirely the autosurface protein that, that dictates uh, how they go. Yeah. Um, well, another question here, I guess to confound it, probably to make you laugh even more. So if I think about a virus, you know, on average, let's say 50 to 100 nanometers, you know, and it's, and it's capsid, uh, the host could be, you know, microns, uh, inches, meters, you know, in a person, meter and a half, let's say. How does the virion successfully find its target cells? And how does it find anything in such a vast expanse of hosts? And how has this happened 10 to the 30th times throughout history across all creatures that there's been so many viral infections? If, you know, virions are non-motile, if they're not alive, they're just floating along. How do they find their targets so often? Uh, that's a very, very, very good question, my friend. So um, what we believe, or what, I mean, not we, what I believe is that... Um, there, the, so so for for an infection to occur, let's let's take a step back. So a virus, in order for for an infection to occur, you need to have, um, let's say, a certain number of viruses in order for a single infection to occur. Because as as you're stating, uh, if you have let's say I don't know twenty virion particles and you just like put them in in and around a cell chances are they're just going to be moving, right? Because it's just a fluid environment. And uh, so, so you require a certain, um, let's say, number of, of viruses to establish an infection. Um, and, and, and the numbers will differ by the viruses that we uh, talk about. So, for example, there are certain viruses that will need only a, a few numbers in order to establish a productive, what we call a productive infection. Um, now, what drives that and how you know, in the space of the infection, because I, I think there's a, there's a couple of things uh, that goes into your question. 
And and what that uh, one one really important thing is the route of entry. So if you're a respiratory virus and you're in the air and you're an aerosol particle like your SARS-CoV-2 and it's being inhaled, um, how many particles are required once it gets into the upper respiratory tract to productively bind to your ACE2 receptor? That's not very clear, right? And how, how many is required to establish a productive infection? Now, your bloodborne pathogens that require you to get into a, an open wound, for example, like an Ebola, how many of those variants that are required in that space to then infect an epithelial cell? The number of virient particles, again, that's not clear, but, but the route of entry matters and the availability of the receptors to which the virus will require to bind to matter. Um, now, exactly the mechanics of that process, and let's see, if we were to shrink ourselves down microscopically, and to be able to be like, okay, there needs to be 20 of these viruses in order to productively get one of them into a cell to then start to reproduce, to then start to cause symptoms. That I think is not so clear for, um, uh, for the most part. Yeah, it's like if I sent you to New York and I say, hey, I need you to, to find me, uh, you know, find my cousin. And I gave you no instructions and you couldn't walk. You know, you just had to like, well, I mean, you could walk, but you just had to wander around. Like, how would you find them? But it seems like viruses find their targets reliably, and it's, I just don't know how they do it. There must be some sensing going uh, on. Maybe what it's no, 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 my friend. But the answer, the answer to your uh, your your question is: if you sent me to New York to find your cousin, it would take me a long time. If you send a thousand of me to New York to find your cousin, it might take me a shorter period of time. If you send a hundred thousand of you to New York to find your cousin, it might take me even a shorter period of time. Right. So it's not a, a one to one relationship. It's a numbers game. Right. And the numbers will dictate the timing with which it will take to find your cousin, such as. And so with a virus, the numbers of particles coming into a system will dictate how infectious it can be sometimes for a given virus. OK, so you think it's just literally numbers and random motion is what makes it work? Uh, I think for the most part, um, but then it gets, I mean, there's going to be a lot more complications, which is going to be the receptors, the receptor availability, and blah, 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 and it gets into some, you know, boring science stuff that I don't need to talk about here on this podcast. We talk about cool well, I guess the only thing that sticks out of me is that, you know, the fact that, um, you know, a virus will typically, you know, again, not find, but run across a receptor and bind to it. Um, that's in a way it's sensing. So I wonder if there is, even though we can't observe it, you know, even as a variant, perhaps there is some sensing going on, and that allows it to. Uh, oh no doubt, no, no doubt, no doubt. There is, there is, there is, there is, there, there is, there is some level of sensing. I think um, when I was in graduate school, there's there's some really nice images. Uh, I can I can send it to you once I find it by email, where they can show like the cytoskeletal changes of the cell. I forgot what virus, but like it's kind of it's they do these like you can do these like slow capture images. And you can see like the virus doesn't just bind, it's like feeling its way through, right? It's not, it doesn't, it's not like it just attaches right away, right? It's kind of, it's kind of bouncing around like a ball, almost, right? On this like surface. And then, and then once it actually finds its way and it, and, it, and it binds to what it wants to bind, there's this like change within the cell where it actually starts to change to accommodate the presence of the virus coming in. And so at a, at a, at a cellular level, there is some level of, I'd say, what you would say sensing, but it really is triggering, where once the virus is able to um, 
to effectively stimulate something on the cell that will allow for its entry inside the cell there's like a, a there's like a, a switch that goes off and it starts to accommodate the infection gotcha okay so uh, another question is you know i don't know how pervasive this is but you know if i think of rabies uh, it seems to be spread by biting and saliva and yet it, it seems to also affect the cells involved in, in that mechanism and flu you know by respiratory droplets so it seems to cause the the host to cough and sneeze and you know it seems like the the tissue and the cells that a virus affects are also coordinated with how it spreads and it seems uh you know is it coincidental how could that happen why is there this apparent matching between you know cells affected and mechanism of transmission ah very good question so so that gets into what we call tropism and 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 the tropism is what guides uh, essentially, what cells, so when we talked about uh, flu, for example, um, so the flu virus will bind to sialic acid um, that are a certain orientation, and, and um, the, you know, SARS-CoV-2 will bind to um, ACE2 receptor. Now, 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 what drives the presence of the virus in particular tissues is going to be governed by the presence of these receptors that the virus is able to bind to get in. And then so um, during the course of an infection, the tissues that it targets and the places that it goes is going to be governed by that initially. Then it gets into immune cells because your immune cells can, um, like your macrophages, will engulf these things non-specifically. That allows for the virus to spread and disseminate. And then again, when it gets into your deeper tissues like the liver or the lungs or other places, again, it's the receptors that are that have to be present that allows for entry. If if the if the specific um, lock is not there on a given cell, um, your virus with this specific key is not getting in. So what 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 really drives that? Um, let's say the pathology for the most part is is where the virus can get in in the in the early stages of the infection and. Um, and, and then if they're able to, you know, um, some viruses are able to transverse, let's say the blood brain barrier and get into the brain. A lot of that's, a lot of that stuff, again, is, is dictated by its initial early stages of pathogenicity and the cells that it can get into that allows for its portal of entry to the different places where it can cause disease. And the disease is yeah. what you see. And I understand why it would target certain cells because of, you know, the way the virus is and the proteins it has and receptors the cell has but again why would it cause the cell to uh to you know cause the organism to respond in such a way as to spread it then again using those same cells and a particular mechanism you know why why wouldn't a respiratory virus instead of making me cough and sneeze just i don't know destroy my lungs so i can't cough and sneeze no, why would it do that? Causing, because the causing and sneezing is not caused by the virus it's caused by your body trying to react to the virus so a lot of the a lot of the um a lot of the reactions uh, to infection, such as like the fever response, um, all of these responses are essentially your body's mechanism for trying to fight it. It's not the virus doing it. It's your body trying to say, get this thing out of me. And this is how I'm trying to do it. So I, I, think, I think we have to kind of reframe that because it's really, it's not, I mean, if the virus would, would I mean, if I, I mean, not to anthropomorphize it, but if I were to be the virus, I don't want you making any noise. I don't want you doing anything, right? I just want you to like sit still and allow me to replicate. 
I don't, I don't, I don't want you uh, to do anything unless I'm, you know, your respiratory guys. Where I want you to, I want, I wanna, I wanna be able to replicate in a certain place, and then your, you know, immune response is going to be such that your throat gets all, you know, fogged up, and then you're going to cough, and then that's going to release me. But, but again, that's your response to me being there. That's not me doing it. It just helps me that this happens, and so as an adaptation, then. I'm going to engage in this way so that this allows it to happen even more and then now you cough. But again, the response is not driven by me. The response is driven by you. It just so happens that it helps me yeah. out. Yeah, it just seems perhaps, uh, you know, more matched than I would think. That's why it was odd. But, okay. Um, do you know of any instances of when a, um, a cell or bacteria is infected by a virus that the virus acts to keep out other viruses that would compete with it? You know, like a, a dog guarding a bone? That's a very good question. I actually, jeez, uh, I read a good article about that like 10 years ago. And I, oh man, I, I, I hesitate to butcher it now. So I, I really don't want to go into it because I could be, I could, I, could, I could say something right now and it might be the complete opposite. And I'm going to read the paper after I get off this podcast and kill myself. So I, I'm not, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I do, I do, I do know, I, I, I do know that um, we, there has been studies, and I, and I have to stay in my lane, so I know within the filovirus world, there have been studies where we, um, infe- well, not me, well, where, where uh, researchers have infected, let's say, with um, two different, uh, like Marburg and Ebola, or, or, or they've mixed and matched the different genes, let's say, that's required for the individual virions. Um, and so, and I believe that when that's happened, the viruses will still um, align together I mean, with, with themselves and they're not gonna mix and match, right? They're, they're not gonna mix and match. So if you put Ebola and Marburg into the same cell, what's not gonna happen is that you're gonna get a variant of, of the two. What you're gonna get is, is specifically one of each virus. They know how to find each other. Now, um, I believe, see, now you're making me really think about it. I, I believe it's vaccine virus where they've been able to show that once it infects the cell, it somehow like sends a signal that might preclude it from being infected by another cell. I, there's, there's something like that, but I don't, I, I do not feel confident um, getting into it. Although I really want to, but I don't. Yeah, but there may be evidence of it. Okay, I got you. Um, no, no, there, there, is, there, is, there is some evidence, because I know I read this paper like over 10 years ago, um, that, 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 there is, that there is some evidence that, let's say, um, it looks like if cell A gets infected, um, it may not be able to be infected again um, right away necessarily. But again, I don't, I don't have all the facts on my side right now. If I was to have a, um, well, if, if I was to have a cell and uh, take out its nucleus or remove some of the machinery, um, but its membrane still looked intact and, you know, had all the right receptors and a uh, virus, you know, fused to it and tried to enter. Do you think that the virus would sense, uh-oh, nobody's home or something's wrong and abort entry? Um, no, I think, actually, funny enough, I think what you're, what you're talking about is some, I think the virus would absolutely replicate um, as long as the machinery um, and the ribosomes and, and a number of other components are intact. But a virus needs a certain number of, of components in the cell to allow for it to replicate. And if, that, if those components are present in the cytoplasm, then if it's, a, 
if it's a virus like like one of our guys that we've been talking about, like an Ebola virus, for example, that replicates in the cytoplasm anyway, and let's say all the components that's required is in the cytoplasm, you know, if all, if all, if all the requirements are there. Now, if because the nucleus is not there, then there's certain factors that are not present, then it won't it, re it won't replicate. But it's it's um it's it's a, just a game of are these things there? If these things are there, then it doesn't matter if you know the nucleus is there. It doesn't matter if any if anything is there. It doesn't need any um for the most part. It doesn't need any of those things. So the virus is gonna get in. It's gonna look for the guys it needs to help it replicate. It's gonna look for its team. It's gonna look for your cousin, if you will. And it's going to do what it needs to do. It doesn't matter if there's skyscrapers yes, there. It doesn't matter if, it, if there's Central Park there. It doesn't matter if anything is there. If it finds your cousin and your cousin's all it needs, it's good to go. Okay. I just didn't know if, um, you know, what if we could make um, uh, a bacteria or a cell with the membrane? The membrane's all right, but it's empty inside. And it can be used as decoys where the viruses would, would enter in no one's home and then they're stuck. So that's, that's why I asked. <laughs> that's your that's that's your vaccine. No, it's just an idea I had. I just wonder if you could make decoys like that, and if that would be effective, and you know, that's a crazy uh, idea, suck up friend. some of the viral load. <laughs> that's a that's a crazy idea, but I like it. I like crazy ideas. Well, good. Well, well, very good, uh, St. Patrick. You know, uh, we're up. I've, hopefully, I've beaten you up with enough tough questions. But um, what's the best <laughs> way for people to to find out about, more about you and your research and all that? You know, I want to make sure that you're. You gave great answers, so the people that want to find out more from you, where can they go? Yeah, I mean, so I'm at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, and my email address is patrick.reed uh, at UNMC. I'm also on Twitter at readlab33. Um, beyond that, um, if you just simply go to the university website, I'm, I'm there. Uh, black guy in the microbiology lab, not hard to find. Okay. Well, St. Patrick, thanks for coming again. It was great to talk to you as usual. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much, man. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.